Today, we continue where we left off last week. And if you're just jumping in for the first time, maybe you're here visiting because it's Thanksgiving weekend. We're glad you came today. There's a lot of places that you could worship uh, in Elkhart County and Goshen. Welcome to Grace Community. We're in the midst of a series of messages called One Minute After You Die. We're looking at events from Scripture, what is to come. And the reason we're doing that is to prepare ourselves for this rapture, the second coming of Christ. Last week, we took time to talk about the second coming of Christ and looking at the signs that are out there. And we walked away from that message, at least I did, and hopefully some of you did, and realized Jesus could come back soon and the rapture could occur at any moment. And so hopefully we're prepared. And like Jude said, our responsibility as Christians is to snatch people from the fire. And so our hope is this, that through this journey, as we culminate with an opportunity to respond to Christ, that, that you make certain of your salvation, because it does make a difference that you know Christ. Today, we're going to open up and take a look at this coming thing called the second coming. We took a significant amount of time last week in saying there's some signs out there. Jesus is coming, he's coming, he's coming. And what is that second coming? So what does that look like? What does that terminology? We're going to answer some questions today. Uh, when will the second coming come? Will we really come back with Jesus at the second coming? Will we be riding on horses like Jesus is on a horse? Will, do we need to go hang out with Dylan Schroff and know how to ride a horse? And should, should, should she teach us how to do that? And um, I was thinking about this this week, Dylan, when I was thinking about this message. Um, will Satan be defeated and burn in hell forever? Is that true? Is, will there finally become a defeat uh, to him? Did Jesus go to hell when he died on the cross? You ever curious about that? Where did Jesus go? Did he, did he, when he died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, and when he felt the full brunt of sin of mankind, did Jesus go to hell? Did he spend time in hell to suffer for sin? Is, did Jesus go there? Do you know the answer to that if someone asks you that? Today, we're going to go on this journey, and we're going to try to unpack answers to all of that. And hopefully, when we get to the end of this, you're going to realize that it is so good to know Jesus Christ. There's nothing better on planet Earth than that decision alone to trust him. And my hope is this, is somehow it stirs this passion in your heart to, to fan the flame of Christ in you, the spirit working in you, or this yearning grows in you throughout this series that man, I, I, I need to trust in Jesus Christ because without him, I am doomed to hell forever. Let's take a look at this putting uh, a, an end to evil and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up or open your mobile device to Revelation 19. It's pretty simple to find. Last book in the Bible. And we're gonna look at verses one to six to begin this message today. I ask you to stand with me. And, uh, and, and we'll read this out loud together. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 19, verses 1 to 6. Let's, let's read this out loud together. Ready, read. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! 
Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You may have a seat. You and I get a chance for revenge. And let me explain what I mean by that. We get a chance with Jesus to come back and, and ride with him in the armies of heaven and put an end to evil and put an end to, to, as we understand, Satan and his cohorts and demons. Yet this Bible gives us a picture that just prior to the second coming of Christ, just prior to this moment, there's this thing in heaven that we're going to be invited to called this love feast, this, this wedding reception. We're the bride, those of us who know Jesus Christ, and he is the groom, and there's this wedding reception. But this won't be your typical wedding reception that you and I have spent many hours at previous to this. This will be a wedding reception like none other. Let me just give you a, a, a chance to take a look and just give you a snapshot again of this timeline, where we're at, where we're headed, and what we're going to be talking about today. We've talked last week that the rapture could occur, and then we, we said there's this period of time called the seven years of tribulation, and then there's this second coming that happens right at the end of the tribulation, and, 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 and just prior to that, there's this event called the marriage supper of the Lamb where those of us who know Christ are invited to. And then the, 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 the timeline shows us there's this 1,000 years that we would understand of peace, the millennial kingdom. And at the beginning of this, you'll see that Satan is bound. He's thrown into this, this pit held there. He's in prison. He's captured. He's covered up. And at the end of this millennial reign, this 1,000 year, he's let out again, thinking, trying to make war again. At the end of that, he's thrown into the, the lake of fire. And as we understand the great white throne judgment, and then that ushers in what we understand as the new heaven and new earth. So today we're going to take a look at this marriage supper, the second coming in the millennial kingdom, and, and try to help us unpack what that means. But as you can see at this wedding supper, it's interesting if you look at this passage closely. The word hallelujah appears four times in six verses. It's the only four times in scripture that hallelujah is spoken. No other place is the word hallelujah spoken. It's spoken four times here and John is looking up and he's trying to proclaim in words that, that, that this is incredible, like praise God, like, like praise God to the nth degree. And he keeps shouting out, hallelujah, amen, hallelujah, amen. And he's, he's trying to speak in terms that say, this is something pretty significant and pretty special. There's exuberant joy seen in heaven. And John gives us a snapshot that we, the bride of Christ, get to go to this wedding reception. Yet it's been delayed for about seven years because of this tribulation period. And so we're excited that finally this, this reception is taking place. And so then he says this in verse 7 to 10. Look what he says in regards to this wedding reception. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride, that's those who know Christ, has made herself ready. That's you and I. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then he says this in verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this down, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the what? What's your Bible say? The lamb. And then he added, these are the true words of God. And then he said, at this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. We get to celebrate at this communion, at this reception, this love feast. If you've ever been to Grace Communities communion, we have this component. This part of our ordinance is a love feast. We have foot washing. We break the bread in the cup. And our understanding of communion is the full breadth of all of those because we're looking forward to this, re- this wedding reception in heaven. And so we have a love feast. We have a meal together. It's a, it's, for us, it's looking forward to this real day in, in history when you and I sit down with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We, the bride, are invited to sit with him. Everyone from Adam to the resurrection of Jesus will be invited. Just stop and consider that for a second, what that'll be like. I tried to ponder and think about that this week because Jesus is omniscient. He's omnipresent. We're not. We're finite. Yet somehow at this wedding reception, most of us, we've sat at tables. Somehow, I've tried to picture how it will take place. Because Jesus is able to be everywhere at one time. Because he's, he's omnipresent. So does that mean that, that I'll be seated at the table and John, you'll be seated at the table and, 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 and he'll be talking to you and I could be cleaned down at the other end and he's talking to me. Our God is able to be, because he's omnipresent, everywhere at the same time. So does that mean that we'll carry conversations with Jesus like we do now? Think about that. When you pray, for instance, just right now, just pray right now. Just pray a praise to God just quietly in your heart. Just, just pray, pray a praise to God quietly in your heart. Whatever the Spirit brings to mind, just, just praise his name right now. Amen. Now just think about that. Every single one of us in this room just prayed a prayer to God. Jesus heard every single one of those prayers. Every single one of them. And not only did he hear every single one of those, he had heard every single one on earth that was uttered at the same time. It won't be any different when we're at this wedding reception with Jesus. We'll be able to communicate. Jesus, hey, how you doing? Brian will say, Jesus, how you doing? Someone else will say, Jesus. Everyone will communicate at the same time. And somehow Jesus will be able to enter act with us. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, then you're not human. But that's our God. If you just want to think, that's the God that loves us. That's the God that gave his life for us. That's the God says, I want to invite you to this reception, incredible reception that we will have with him. And so we're, 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 we're at this reception and who else is there? Recently, someone asked me this question, and people often pause and ask this question. What about the Old Testament saints? Are they there? What, what happens to them? Where, where did they go? Like, I understand, you, Pastor Jim, when you talked about the intermediate heaven, but where, 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 where's, where's Jacob, and where's Joseph, and where's, where, where's Noah? 
Where, where are they at right now? And when, when, when they die, where, where did they go? I'm going to pull apart and tell you where they're at. I believe they'll be at this wedding reception, but where are they at before Christ came? Where were they? The Bible gives us this, this Hebrew word that's called sheol. Sheol is what we would understand the Greek word in the New Testament that we already looked at a few weeks ago called Hades or Abraham's side, the righteous side. There's a two compartment place in the Old Testament. There's the wicked side of Sheol where those who didn't trust in the Messiah to come. And there's the righteous side of Sheol where those like Joseph, those like David, those like Noah who believed in the Messiah to come, they went and they went into this, this, this place called Sheol, New Testament. It's Hades, the wicked side. When someone dies, that's where they go. That's where they're at. And then those that know Christ, Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, or we saw Jesus say, today I will see you in paradise. So there's two compartments. So those that died during the Old Testament they went to this righteous side called of Sheol. They went to a place where was what we would understand New Testament as paradise. Sheol in the Old Testament is, is mentioned 65 times, and it refers to both places. It's referred to, and you'll see it translated as grave, death, and hell in English words. But if you were to look at the Hebrew word, it would be Sheol. It's often referred to as a place where dead exists. Proverbs 9, 18. Psalm 86, 13 says it's a place for the soul. Psalm 9, verse 17 says it's a place for the wicked and those who forget God. Genesis 44, 29 says it's, it's the place that godly Jacob was to go. Psalm 89, 48 says all men who don't know God go to Sheol. And we know Jesus referred to this when he said, today I'll see you in paradise. That's what we'd understand as the righteous side of Sheol. So where did these people go when they died? How did they get to heaven? If they were in this righteous side, why are they there? Are they still there? Where did Jesus go when he died? The answer to that question helps us to understand where the Old Testament saints went. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's very, very important. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's answer that question today. Where did Jesus go when he died? And where did the Old Testament saints go? How do they get here? How do they make it to join us at this wedding reception if they were in this place called the righteous side of Sheol? Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 to 9. Where did Jesus go and what happened to the Old Testament saints? Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. It says this, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on what? What's it say? High. He took many what? And gave gifts to his people. What does he ascend it mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly what? So we get from that passage that Jesus, when he died on the cross, descended to the lower earthly regions. Is that hell? Did Jesus go to hell? 
Did, did he not suffer enough on the cross? Did the son of man go to hell? Or did he just go to this lower earthly region? Well, let's, let's, let's keep unpacking this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. Just go left from where you're at. Just three books. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. And we'll begin at the end of verse 54. Paul gives us this, this proclamation. And he says that somewhere along the line, this was spoken. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of verse 54, it says, death has been swallowed up in what? What's the word? Victory. Where, O death, is your what? Where, O death, is your sting? What does that refer to? Well, let me show you what it refers to. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 in verse 18. Let's, let's unpack this. Let's, let's just see where Jesus went and what happened to Old Testament saints. Revelation chapter 1 in verse 18. The words of Christ. Revelation 1 verse 18 says this. I am the living one. I was what? And now look, I am what? Forever and ever. And I hold the keys of what? Death and what? Jesus was not a captive. Jesus was a deliverer, okay? Keep, keep holding on to this. Go right. First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. This is so important. First Peter chapter three. Find your mobile device. Open up your Bible. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 and 20 through 20. Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to what? He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, after being made alive, he went and made, what's the word? Proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. One more, and I'm going to build my case. John chapter 19 and verse 30. John chapter 19 and verse 30. We're going to find out where Jesus went. We're going to find out where the Old Testament saints, how did they get to this wedding reception? If Jesus wasn't around yet, and he didn't die on the cross, how did they get there? John chapter 19 and verse 30. Look what John chapter 19 and verse 30 says. Jesus is the death of Christ on the cross. Look at verse 28. We'll begin there. 19 says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am what? A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is what? And then it says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, let me just pull away. We just looked at a lot of Bible passages right there that are very significant. We saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We saw that Jesus went and spoke to imprisoned people We saw in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 
that, that, that he held the keys of, of death. We saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, that he descended to the lower regions. Here's what I believe from Scripture took place. When Christ was on the cross, and the culmination of prophecy was fulfilled, when he said, it is finished, at that moment, he felt the full brunt, suffered the full penalty, and the torment of mankind's sin. He suffered as much and as as most as anybody has ever suffered. And at that moment, his suffering had ended. It is finished. And at that moment, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, that Jesus went down to the lower regions. He went down and he opened up that, that compartment that we talked about, the righteous side of Sheol. And he let those that were there and he took them to send, ascend it up and place them as we understand right now in that intermediate heaven and they are there today with them. And at the same time, he took the keys of death and Hades and he looked at the enemy and says, oh death, where is thy victory? Oh death, where is your sting? In other words, he looked at Satan and says, you no longer have victory over death. That's what he did right there. It's a powerful picture of what Christ did for us. So where are Old Testament saints? They're at this wedding reception. How'd they get there? Jesus went down to the lower regions, the righteous side, released them out. They are in the intermediate heaven, which will eventually become, as we understand, the eternal state. And guess what? They will be with you and I riding on horses, coming with the King of kings and the Lord of lords to wipe out evil on planet earth. Amen? That's the picture. It's so important that we put all those pieces together. Because in my mind, when Jesus said it is finished, he had suffered the complete fulfillment of prophecy. He didn't need to suffer for sin anymore. He didn't need to carry any more penalty. He suffered it all on the cross. Now picture, pull away from that. We're at this wedding reception. And we're, we're finite. And, and, and we're very familiar with the word of God because the word of God is eternal. Psalms tells us it's eternal and it lasts forever. There's no doubt in my mind there's going to be some versions of the Bible in heaven. And someone is going to pull out their mobile device and say, hey, guess what's happening next? I know there's a reception, but can we be done with this eating? Can, can, can we mount on some horses? Because Jesus is going to be standing and, and he's going to be, John's going to be seen standing at the gates wide open and he's going to get ready to mount on a horse. And after this wedding reception, you and I, we are going to war and it's a war that we win. And it's a battle of the Armageddon, as scripture refers. There's going to be a buzz in the room, our conversation. We're going to be glad to see Noah and we're going to be glad to see Joseph. You're going to be glad to see my dad and your mom and, and those that you love. And we're going to be excited about seeing them. But listen to me, we get to be with Jesus to put an end to evil on earth. Like my mind's going to be thinking about that. Revelation chapter 19, 
John gives a picture, and look what he says in verse 11. In Revelation chapter 19, turn back to Revelation. He gives a picture then, we're at this wedding feast, and in Revelation chapter 19, in verse 11, he says this, I saw heaven standing what? And there before me was a what kind of horse? Whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. An awesome reception has just ended. We've been able to catch up in conversation and maybe you got some questions answered from people that you've always wanted to meet and maybe, maybe you got an answer from Jesus. Like you've had this question that you've always wanted answered and, and, and he answered you and we're finished eating. And, and then John said in verse 11, there's this picture of Jesus ready to mount on this horse. And so Christ stands up and I think we'll be pretty juiced up about this war to come, be quite frank. I really do. And, and, but generally, when it comes to a honeymoon, after a wedding reception, we go away for a week or two. Normally, you hop in a car or you fly on a jet plane and, or you drive away. And it's no different here because the Lamb of God appears before his bride and he says, hey, we're taking a trip. and We know where we're going. We're going back to earth. We're, like, we're going back to earth. Who wants to go back there after that seven years of tribulation? Man, there's just chaos and earthquakes and bodies and, and evil. Why do you want to go back there? Let, let's go to this remote island of paradise somewhere. And there's this picture that's there. And then he says, no, we're going back. And we're going to spend a thousand years there. And better yet, it's going to be a thousand years of peace in a marriage. That alone is a miracle, isn't it? But right before we go... He says, we need to rid the honeymoon spot on planet earth of all the evil, of any enemy. So get your battle gear and saddle up. I was thinking about that this week, you know, because we're finite and I believe that we continue to learn. I believe that we have different skills, abilities, and talents. And I believe we'll continue to learn in this place called the eternal state. And I wonder, like, how I'll be riding a horse. (laughs) Like, is it literal horse? I believe it is. It'd be great if it was a steel horse, because I could just jump on my Harley and go. I mean, it just... But I got to believe there's some of us, we'll be taking a peek at the the horse stable. Like, I want that one. I, I I don't want a thoroughbred. I want a quarter horse, because quarter horses, they're your fastest. They can sprint. Like... We'll be looking, and, and I'm sure on our mind, it'd be saying, let's, let's jump on a horse. And I, like, Give me secretariat. Like, let me come back on. It's a beautiful picture. And I believe there needs to be a sense of like, Jesus, this is so good. And, and, and it'll be so rich. And we'll have conversation with the God the Father and God the Son God, the Holy Spirit, like we'll have these rich conversations, like it'd be so rich and we won't want to leave that. But then when he stands up, John 19, 11, and his name is true and faithful and he mounts on his horse and he gets out that sword, we're going to run to the stable and mount up with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we will win the battle. It's a beautiful picture that's here in Scripture. So John gives it to us. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verses 12 through 16. 
He says this, he said, his eyes, Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of what? Look at verse 14. Here you go. Just put your name in there. The armies of heaven were what him? Riding on white what? And dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. Read it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. We're coming back with Jesus second coming. And there's this battle that's going to unpack called the great battle of Armageddon. John gives a description of that because Satan is still on earth. The Antichrist is alive and well, the beast and the false prophet. And so they're, they're wreaking havoc and they're about ready to attack Jerusalem, Israel. They want to get Israel. And so they're ready to launch this all out attack. And then it says this, however, when they're ready to attack, look at Revelation chapter 16, right prior to this attack, look what happens before us coming, before we come, look at Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. John says, then I saw three impure spirits look like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on that great day of God Almighty, which is Armageddon. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The Antichrist is frustrated. And I would say ticked off. Just when he thinks he's about to gain control of the land. He's about ready to win this battle. It says that the river Euphrates. And if you've ever seen the river Euphrates. It dries up. And you might think, what's the big deal about that? Like what? Well, what's the big deal? Well, if you've ever been in battle. That was an opportunity for them to be protected from anyone attacking them from the flank. They had to come across the water to get to them. But this bold judgment takes place and God dries up the Euphrates. And they think they're attacking this army. And then out of nowhere, look, that's left over from Fight Club graduation. <laughs> We're still celebrating. That was just incredible timing, by the way, God, thanks. (laughs) And out of nowhere, there's this other group that's coming. The Antichrist isn't aware of what's taking place. He's thinking here and out. He looks to his right. The flank, coming from the flank, out of the sky in heaven is who? Us. We're coming. He's thinking he has one army going. No, he's got... Every single Christ follower from Adam to that point who's seeking, honking revenge, and we are there, and we will win this battle. It's a beautiful picture. 
Revelation chapter 19 (coughs) gives us a picture of that. Look at Revelation 19. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free, slave, great, and small. Church, this isn't your flannel graph Jesus. (laughs) This isn't bobblehead Jesus. This isn't Mary had a little lamb Jesus. This isn't your Christmas pageant. This isn't Jesus that we see in the manger but it's a savior dripping with blood, riding with the armies of heaven, seeking revenge, and he will wipe out everything. Everything. This is not a picture of a defeated bride. This is not a picture of a persecuted bride. This is not a picture of a martyr, but it's a picture of a martyred group who is seeking revenge. It's not a defenseless group but a redeemed, perfected group of soldiers seeking revenge. Revelation 19, verse 17 and 18 gives us this picture that the angel standing in the sun cried out in a loud voice to birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. Verse 19 And then John says, Then I saw the beast, the Antichrist. We talked about him last week. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. That's us. Like, the arrogance. Like, somehow, like, they think they're going to win. And then it says this, verse 20, But the beast, the Antichrist, was what? What's it say? And with its the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast 666 and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown, how? What were they? Alive into the fiery lake of burning what? And we get to watch that, Grace Community. Jesus comes back. The Antichrist is ready to attack over here. River Euphrates dries up and the armies of heaven come behind and out of his mouth is this sword and he wipes out all evil. He wipes out everything. He grabs the Antichrist, the beast and his false prophet and throws him into the burning sulfur as we understand the lake of fire. You talk about some cheering that's going to take place. (laughs) We're going to be cheering. We're going to be celebrating. Zechariah gives us a picture of this when Jesus comes. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. It's important to look at the Old Testament prophecy because they predicted this taking place. They wrote this before the New Testament was written. Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verses 1 and 4. Talking about this battle, this second coming, this battle of Armageddon. 
Zechariah 14, 1 says, In the day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when you, your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the woman raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with the half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Jesus comes back and stands on the Mount of Olives. So who's left from this? Does anyone survive this great battle? Look again at verse 21 of chapter 19. The rest were killed. In other words, everyone with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their what? Let me go back to this timeline. So we have this great battle that just took place, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. Satan is going to be thrown has been thrown into this bottomless pit. Everyone is dead that believed in Satan. Every single person. But we know that there's this battle at the end of the millennium. Like Satan comes out, his release, and he goes back and he, he, he takes his cohorts and he battles against, thinks he's going to, in this another battle against the kingdom of God. Like where do those people come from? Like, there's no unsaved people, as we understand, or evil people left. Where are they at? Like, who is he going to gather if the millennial kingdom is supposed to be a thousand years of peace? Who, who, who's left? If the only people left at the end of the battle of Armageddon are Christ's followers, then where do unsaved people come from? Where do followers of Satan How can he gather anyone? Scripture gives us indication that 200 million potential people will be gathered with him. Again, for this last attack after he gets released. Let's just see. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Look what it says. Verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, in his hand a great chain. He seized the what? That ancient what? Come on, you got to help me out. Come on, come on, read with me. He sees the what? That ancient what? Who is the what? Or what? In other words, I've covered every, t- every name for him. We got the devil. We got the ancient serpent. We got the dragon. We got Satan. We seized him and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were what? And after that, he must be set free for a short period of time. Now picture if you can. Satan being captured. The epitome of evil. The epitome of schemes and trickery and deception and sin. Bound thousand years literal thousand years every day he's counting he's 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 in that prison and he's marking down i got i got i got 999 years and and 36 days to go picture the angst and the anger 
and the scheming in his mind. Because listen, he's read scripture. He's fully aware of scripture. He knows his destination. People have asked me this question, Pastor Jim. Can Satan be saved? Like, would there ever be a chance like right now? Like, could Satan be saved? Could he repent of his sin and be saved? Let me ask you a question. Don't answer. How would you answer that? And why would you answer that? And what would you use? How would you use scripture to answer that? Would you just say, no, it's impossible. Because why would you say that? Could Satan repent? Like right now, could Satan say, I repent, I repent. I trust in Jesus Christ. Is it possible for Satan to repent? How would you answer that question if someone asked you that? Well, here's the answer to that question. The answer is no. Why? Because scripture says he can't. Here it is, here it is. There it is. What happens to him? There's no, no chance because he, he never does. Scripture is truthful. And the picture of Satan is he never repents. He's bound up. And then we're going to see that he's thrown in a lake of fire forever. People say, give me proof. There it is. He never does. Even though he's red, he's waiting. He knows that he's going to the lake of fire. And so he still wants to somehow think that he can deceive the nations. Well, what happens to him? Look at chapter 20 and verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. And number, they're like sand on the seashore. Wait a minute, where'd they come from? Wasn't all the unsaved people killed? Weren't they all killed? Like, how can that be? Like the number on the seashore, they march across the breadth of the earth? Where? Who? And surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves? Like, who are these people? Didn't he kill all the unsaved? But fire came down from heaven and what them? And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Who are those people? That he gathers, almost 200 million. Here's where they are. Now, let's go back to this timeline. Let me explain this to you. Remember, the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. I'm a pre-tribulationist, and I explained and showed last week why I believe in pre-tribulation. The church is raptured out. So all the believers are gone. So these people make it in who are unsaved into the time of tribulation. Some, few, few, will trust in Jesus. Most of them will die a martyr's life. Some will make it through the tribulation. And those people who are Christ followers, who weren't killed at the battle of Armageddon, will find their way into this millennial kingdom. Human beings, flesh and blood. We who already are in our resurrected bodies, have come down to live on planet Earth in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. No sin in us. It's impossible. The old sin nature is gone. We, 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 we have resurrected bodies, but there will be these finite human bodies that are saved starting out. And for a thousand years, we'll be there. You know what happens? Bob meets Sue, who's saved. They have a child. A child doesn't trust in Jesus Christ. That child has a child that doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, doesn't trust in Jesus Christ. And you ask this question, how is that even humanly possible? How could someone not 
trust in Jesus Christ after all that had taken place. How in the world could a child be born, grow up as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, and denying? How could they hear from their grandfather and their grand? How could they see all these finite beings and resurrected bodies moving around? How in the world could they not believe in Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't they trust in him? Is it really any different for us? How many of you deny Christ? And yet the Bible gives us a written record. You've watched your mom and dad and friend and cousin and sister and brother. You've seen a a life transformation. You've seen a miracle take place in your life, and you still deny Christ. Why? Because there is still free will in the millennial reign. And during this time, millions of people will deny that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And Satan gathers them. And it says he gathers them and they surround the camp of God. That's a lot of people. That's a ton of people. And what do we read though? What happens to them? Verse 9 of chapter 20, they march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and what them? Devoured them. And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Who are those people that don't know Christ? How do you know those people? Well, there's this judgment that takes place. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 11. Then John said this. Then I saw what kind of throne? What is it? A great white throne. And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from its presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had what? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What does it mean that death gave up and Hades? What does it mean that death was thrown into the lake of fire? What does it mean Hades was thrown in the lake of fire? Like, what does that mean? Death? It's all the bodies on planet Earth that were buried. It's all the bodies that were cremated. It's all the bodies that were blown up. It's all the bodies that were burned or mutilated that didn't know Christ. It says that death gave those up. And those bodies were thrown where? Into the lake of fire to meet the soul that's unsaved. What's Hades? Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is the wicked side where people go today. It's the wicked side of Sheol in the Old Testament. Those compartments, this is what happens. They are emptied and thrown into the lake of fire and burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's important, that terminology, 
because it, it goes against those who are nihilists, who say, hey, once we die, we're thrown and we're done. No, it's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And next week, we're going to look at what that looks like. And then John said this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Look what he says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. This book of life, what's this book of life? John chapter 3 and verse 5, it says this. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's this book from creation called the book of life that has every name that has ever been born. Alphabetically, However he's done it, maybe it's date, every name that's ever been born. And what happens is this. If they don't trust, if they haven't been elected, if they haven't been predestined, if they haven't been adopted, if they don't know Jesus Christ, what happens? Their names are blotted out. They're just blotted out. And so you're left with this book that has a whole bunch of names that are blotted out. And the names that remain are the names that end up in the Lamb's book of life. And when your name is there, it can't be removed. And you will spend eternity with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, Lord. In some ways, we look and we wonder, if are you really doing anything about evil? We wonder if there ever be an end. To the darkness we see every day. We wonder, Lord, when the day will come when you will come back mounted on a horse and we'll come with you. God, we long for that day. We long for the day when we spend our lives with you in this eternal state where heaven comes down to earth and we live forever and ever. No sin, no darkness, no evil. And God, we're grateful that you overcame death through your son, Jesus Christ. If Jesus never overcame, he could have never made the proclamation, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We are grateful that we serve a risen Savior who will come back one day and rule in complete control and sovereignty, and we are with him. In Jesus' name, amen.